Today on the John Ankerberg Show, are you a Christian who doubts? Why is it that after placing belief in Christ, you are plagued with questions about your faith? Why do you live each day wondering if you are truly a Christian and doubting whether God has really forgiven your sins? You fear going to hell, but aren't sure you will go to heaven. Why do you have these doubts? Is there a biblical way to conquer your depressing thoughts of unbelief? Can you really get rid of all your doubts? Today, John's guest is Dr. Gary Habermas, Chairman of the Department of Philosophy and Theology at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. He is the author of more than 21 books, including a book on doubt called The Thomas Factor. We invite you to join us. Welcome to our program. Are you a Christian who has doubts about your salvation, about your relationship with God? You wonder where God is in times of tragedy or disappointment? I know some of you have been struggling with doubt for years. Why? Because you've told us. You've almost given up hope that you'll experience what other Christians seem to experience all the time. And the Bible does promise peace and assurance to God's children. So why don't you have it? You certainly want it. Well, I think we also have to realize there are many kinds of doubts. But emotional doubt is probably the worst, the most destructive and debilitating of all the doubts you can have. Emotional doubt robs you of your joy with Christ. It burdens your worship, makes you feel guilty, keeps you from running to God with your problems. And when you do talk to God, all you seem to get is silence in return. Well, Dr. Gary Habermas is my guest today. He's going to help us with this topic. He knows well of what he's talking about. As a student, he was a skeptic himself. He attended Michigan State University, got his Ph.D., and in the process of his studies, he found out that the evidence for Christianity was persuasive, it was strong, and he became a believer. Therefore, he has the credentials to talk to some of you who have intellectual doubts that are keeping you from Christ. But then after becoming a Christian, Dr. Habermas tragically lost his wonderful young wife to cancer and went through the full spectrum of feelings and emotions and all the turbulence that center around death and the tragedy. He asked, doesn't God answer every prayer we make in Jesus' name? Well, in light of all of these things, Gary has written two books on doubt to help people find assurance of their salvation as well as faith in God's power to conquer their doubts. And Gary, I am glad that you are here today. Uh, there's so many areas that we could start off with, uh, but let's start off with talking to people who have doubt, define the different kinds of doubts that you've seen as you've talked with people. Well, first, just, just a definition. <clears throat> I would define doubt as uncertainty. And that's probably the best synonym, in my opinion. Uncertainty regarding God or our relationship to him. Questions about God or questions about us in light of him. Now, we see different kinds of questions. We hear, see people asking questions about the truth of Christianity, we see people saying, hey, I don't question the truth of Christianity at all. I just wonder if I can be counted among their number. Uh, did I say the right words? Did I do the right thing? What if I'm wrong? And we see the other kind of questions you ask, too. Why do bad things happen to good people? And how come it seems that my prayers don't get past the ceiling? I think it's convenient if we divide doubt into three family groupings. Okay. And I do it in this order because doubt often progresses this way. First of all, factual doubt. Factual doubt is fairly simple, not necessarily simple because 
uh, there are no good questions. But simple the way a clean break is simple compared to a compound fracture. Because the answer to factual doubt is the facts. And in my opinion, no belief system is clearer with data than Christianity. So you have factual questions, you have factual answers, and that's, that's the key. Yeah, and, and i got to say, though, but from the guy that's been raised basically in the street, and we have so many broken-down homes today in our, our society, and they've never seen God, never been to church, okay, and to start talking about God, this is the furthest thing from their mind that right. there's a reality, that God is a reality, that he's actually there, because for them, they don't see evidence of that, okay? So that's part of the intellectual doubt that comes, so we'll talk to that, but keep going. Yeah, and, and the second kind, as you said, emotional doubt is by far the most common and by far the most painful. I've done some work with a psychologist buddy of mine, and we've given people batteries of exams so we can kind of tell, or he does the work on this, uh, personality types, and we kind of predict what kind of doubt certain personality types have, and we've come up with a scale that you can uh, take questions and see what kind of doubt you have. Well, it's from that that we learn, uh, this is just a guess, Maybe 70% of doubters are primarily emotional doubters. It's the most common, and it's very painful. But it's the one concerning which there are the most twists and turns because it's not as bad, as generally, as the person tells himself. Define more about what emotional doubt is. Sure. What do you mean? Well, fa factual doubt comes from asking tough questions, uh, which is really the son of God is really raised from the dead. Emotional doubt is mood-related. It's personality-related. And... It often comes from, uh, we, we don't stop and think about this, but it comes after a hard day in the office. It comes after flunking an exam. It comes after a child is having issues. It comes perhaps when you ask somebody out and they say no. I mean, you get caught up with things emotionally and things don't work out as you, as you think they should, and it's those moments, often late at night in bed, and you say, what if I'm going to hell? Now, you know, I've taken informal surveys among thousands of people how many of you, after salvation, has, have contemplated at some point that you could just be, maybe, what if, going to hell? I've seen up to 100% of hands raised. For sure. Typically, I just did this a few days ago with the group, 70 80%. Mm -hmm. Very common. That's a what if kind of doubt. And you say to the person, well, John, do you have any reason to think you're going to hell? Well, uh, no, but uh, what if? Or I could ask that same factual question. See, doubt has more to do with why you're saying what you're saying that it does what you're saying. So you could say, well, what if Christianity's false? Well, John, uh, maybe you have a question you want to lay on the table here. No, I just wondered, what if it is? Nothing on your mind. No, nothing, but what if they're asking factual questions, but what if questions are usually emotional? And so they are fact-related, first category, mood-related, second category, See, I may ask about the truth of Christianity, but I'm not asking about the data. I'm asking how I feel about the data. And I'm asking what's going on in my life when I'm asking that question. That's emotional. Yeah, and the emotional does come into the theological, but because of what you do believe influences what you feel. Oh, absolutely. What you say to yourself influences what you do and how you feel. And so if you're not clicking on all cylinders up here, I mean, we all know to say, it's a great day until someone cuts me off in traffic. And the minute I say it's, bummer, this always happens, bad day coming, and all of a sudden I feel down. That's kind of the process that happens uh, often with us. 
And uh, what are we talking about again? Feelings. All right, let's talk a little bit about the intellectual, but I want to spend the most of the time on the emotional. What are the big ones in terms of the intellectual problems? Give us a couple hints of how to get through those. Well, and by the way, the third one is volitional, okay. which has to do with will, and that can be a lot more serious. The person has very few feelings, and it's uh, loss of motivation. Uh, the person who the zeal is gone, they're on the fence, or they're worse, and they're starting to drift. Um, okay, what kind of things are you saying with, with, with factual doubt? Uh, the question might be this. You know, I've heard the Bible's word of God, but uh, come on, all religions of the world claim this sort of thing. What data do we have for this? And you might press on that. Or the deity of Christ. But frequently, what I usually see, if the answer to factual doubt is the facts, there's a right way and a wrong way to act, ask about facts. I think the closer to the center of Christianity you get, what believers call many times the fundamental doctrines, those are the ones that should make a difference. But that's not what you see. Many Christians, while asking factual questions, ask them about secondary issues. I mean, you, you've done a lot of programs on things like this. What do Christians disagree over? Things like, what is the age of the earth? Uh, do, am I eternally secure? Am I not eternally secure? What about the sign gifts? Uh, Pre-mill, amill, pre-trip post. And some people feel very, very strongly about that. And that's fine. Nothing wrong with having a view. But I think the great many of us would, would recognize that a Christian is not a Christian because of what view they hold on the millennium. So two things you have to do with, with factual doubt. You have to know the data and recall it and bring it to bear on the problem. Secondly, you have to see what it is you're asking questions about. You want to major in the major. Paul in Romans 14 and 15 tell us not to judge another person about certain issues, and he picks two pithy, very difficult issues, one moral, one theological, vegetarianism, meat offered to idols, and secondly, what day do you worship on? And Paul doesn't step in there and say, here you do, parse the verbs this way and this way and over here. This is right. He says, the man who eats, eats to the Lord. The man who doesn't eat, Oh, he's wrong? No. To the Lord, he doesn't eat. The one who takes a day, takes that day to the Lord. And the one who doesn't, the implications are, doesn't do it, but to the Lord. We don't have to solve every issue in the world. There's nothing wrong with living with questions. And I think we need to tell ourselves, this is a complicated world. The reason Christians disagree is not because the Bible's not this or the Bible's not this, because we're persons. By the way, the root of doubt is because, number one, we're finite persons. Number two, we're sinners. That's the root of doubt, not because the Bible's not clear or whatever. But if we major in the major, minor in the minor, and then concentrate on those major doctrines, Christianity is pretty clear. That's why Christians who've trusted Christ, there's very little disagreement about those central doctrines. I think that's very significant. All right, stick with one of them that is coming up often with some people that have doubt, and that is that, uh, yeah, God is a love, but not for me. God is a God of love, but not for me. You've got election, not elect. So they're not going to make it. I mean, that's a theological problem that affects whether or not they can accept the promises of God. Right. What's your advice in terms of being a very controversial question? Well, to me, it, it depends, as I said, not so much on what they're asking, but on the angle from which they're asking it. If they say, well, what is your view on this uh, position of sovereignty, free will, and so on and so on? One of the first things I'm going to say is, uh, colloquially, I'll say, who died and left me boss of this kingdom? I may be, I, I may teach theology or I may teach philosophy, but that doesn't mean I'm the be-all, end-all, end of this. 
but also a person's salvation does not depend on whether they emphasize God's free will or man's. There are different ways to slice this pie. See, I would not want to answer that question in this sense. Then I give, by answering, I give the person the impression what they say about this is crucial. Then they get off in this quandary because Christians are just all over the map on it. To me, the issue is this. What are you telling yourself about it? If you're saying, well, you know what? I could be elect, but, um, man, what if I'm not? Uh, Could I be going to hell? What if I didn't say the right words? Almost always, those are factual questions, but emotional responses to them. I call that emotional doubt. Let me give you an analogy. When you go to see a medical doctor, you may have several things wrong. Uh, Doc, my ear hurts. I've got a really sore throat. And a couple other things are going on here. The doctor might treat you for two things, or he or she may treat you for one thing. He might, but but they, they've got to make a choice at this point. They treat the worst or the most central or the toughest, most dangerous of the symptoms, the ones that cause pain. And almost no doubt is only and always one kind. We're whole people, and we are integrated, and our questions are all over the map. But the person who's listening, the friend, the counselor, the pastor, has to say, well, look, this is primarily emotional. Let's not talk about your question right now. Let's talk about why you're asking it. There's some hurt here, and we've got to deal with the emotions. And that's what you deal with. They can see the question better when they're thinking more clearly. Okay. I love the verse, God so loved the world that he gave his son for everybody. In other words, so let's assume that you have a God that loves everybody. Another problem that comes up, have I committed too much sin? These are kind of intellectual problems that people say, well, you know, Habermas, you were you're a pretty good guy most of your life. You don't know my track record. Okay? So, yeah, God might be a God of love, but how do you get across to these people that God would love the fellow that's really messed up his life. Well, several stages here. First of all, the Bible speaks of all persons as God's children. In some sense, we are all his children by creation. Then John one twelve says, to them who received him, to them gave he power to become the children of God. So the second level is this, this filial relationship, those who make a step. I don't think the sin thing is that much of a, of a factor for this reason. God doesn't segregate on the grounds of how bad your sin is. Christianity is not about doing. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The view of the Bible, it seems to me, is sin is paid for when a person has a filial relationship, when they say, I do to Jesus in light of what he's done on the cross and the empty tomb, who he is. So little sin, more sin. It really is a moot point. Because sin is sin. Sin deserves judgment. If someone says, you don't know what kind of a person I am, hey, look, Jesus died for that person, died for me. I don't think the uh, volume of sin is the issue here. It's but what, what for the, for the, for well, I guess what I'm getting to is that the person, again, is in the feeling area. The facts have not reached his oh, sure. the feeling area because sure. the background is there that is so much sin that it's just, you know, God would really accept me. Okay, you're telling me that intellectually. How do I get that from the intellectual thought to I actually hold on to it, believe it? Yeah, I, I think I subscribe to what's sometimes called uh, cognitive theory or, or that your thoughts and then later your actions have to come into line with, with truth. And if a person is telling themselves something, no matter how far it is from reality, 
They're going to believe what they're saying. And their emotions are going to react according to what they're saying. I mean, a real simple example I give. Sometimes Mondays are tough. Uh, we say, oh, we just got over the weekend. Mondays are bad days. And sometimes I'm having a rough Monday. And I remember halfway through that day, I said, wait a minute. Nine o'clock, Monday night football. Yes. And what I mean by that is, here's the, I know what language I just told myself. And here's what I'm saying. I can handle anything up till nine o'clock. Nine o'clock, I'm crashing. And many times we do that. And here's what we learned. Whoa, what happened? I'm in a great mood. Nothing happened. Nothing else happened. Here's the only thing that happened. Yes, I can take it. Our thoughts determine how we feel. Proverbs 15, 15 says that a cheerful heart hath a continual feast. I think that's a great word. Who doesn't like a feast? Especially when there's fellowship and friends involved. A cheerful heart lives in that kind of surrounding. Why? Not because great things happen and so I'm a good person. It has to do with what you say to yourself. You feed yourself bad thoughts, you're going to feel badly. But when you get that yes, there's a lot of yes thoughts that we can tell ourselves that instantly change how we feel. And I think that's what we're talking about with emotional doubt. Encourage the people by giving some examples. I loved in your book where you said there are some great examples of Christians, godly people that had doubts in their life. Oh, absolutely. Well, just go back to the Bible. Job is the best case. We don't read those 30-some silent chapters in Job. Job says some very strong things. At one point, to paraphrase, he says to God, get out of my face so I can have a moment's rest. Well, we expect Job to say that, but how about great heroes of the faith? If I said, who's the man of faith? You'd say, Abraham. But talk about struggles. He's told not to take uh, family, others with him. He takes a lot. He asks in chapter 15, Genesis, how do I know this is true? Twice he lies about Sarah. Once we're told he lied because he's afraid his life was going to be taken. But wait a minute, Abraham. If God gave you this promise, you don't have a son yet. This isn't, you know, nothing's happened yet, but he's questioning. My favorite one is Genesis 17 where God says to him, you're going to be a father of many nations. He falls down on the ground laughing. This is the man of faith. How about David, the man after God's own heart? And we don't have to tell people his his foibles are very well known but we've got many things in david's life that keep him from being on top of things and he cries out restoring to me the joy of my salvation but david's a man after god's own heart you got john in the new testament john the baptist he's in prison he sends his two disciples to jesus and they say two questions luke 7 are you the messiah or should we look for another now the first question was bad enough are you really him but uh, there's this guy down the street, and his name's Krishna. I mean, no offense, I'm just wondering. And Jesus says to the disciples, he doesn't say, hey, you can tell John to go jump in the lake. He says, go tell John the things I'm doing. And right there on the spot, he's healing, he's raising, he's touching, and people are getting healed. And as the disciples of John walk away, Jesus said to the people, hey, what do you expect when you went out there in the wilderness to see this guy? Some kind of country bumpkin? No, I'm telling you, he's the greatest man ever born. Now, that's incredible. Doubting John, because the disciples haven't gotten back to him yet, doubting John is the greatest man ever born. Paul's thorn in the flesh. Uh, over and over again, Jeremiah, we call him the weeping prophet. You know, today I think we call him the depressed prophet. I mean, this man's suffering, lamentations. Uh, why are you doing all this stuff? The book of Psalms. The Bible is filled with patches like this. People say, well, I haven't heard this before. It doesn't preach. But I think it does preach. I think those passages say we're humans, we're finite. 
Number two, we're sinful. That's why we doubt. That's the first thing. Okay, now, okay. but I want you to, first of all, tell the people that are listening, they can beat this doubt. Oh, hey, absolutely. You know, to me, first of all, I went through it for 10 years, and I think I ran the whole gamut, factual, emotional, volitional. But I have, I have talked to several people. Don't, don't hear me saying, it's me, it's me, it's me. But this is a, it, there's a lot of twists and turns here. And I have seen so many people, I could tell you story after story uh, of people who say, well, this is, I, I've gone to so many pastors, I've gone to so many professors, I sure hope you could do something because everybody else just hasn't been very smart. And with that, they sit down after this challenge and they walk away. And a few weeks later, and uh, they're saying, hey, it was so simple, why didn't I do this a long time ago? It's complicated and it's painful, and it's not that hard to break in most cases. All right, we're going to pick this up again. We're going to pick up with the myths the common myths about doubts, and we still want to hit this thing of the emotional doubts that people have, and then get to the volitional. Stick with us. Are you a Christian who has doubts about your salvation, about your relationship with God? You wonder where God is in times of tragedy or disappointment? I know some of you have been struggling with doubt for years. Why? Because you've told us you've almost given up hope that you'll experience what other Christians seem to experience all the time. And the Bible does promise peace and assurance to God's children. So why don't you have it? You certainly want it. Well, I think we also have to realize there are many kinds of doubts. But emotional doubt is probably the worst, the most destructive and debilitating of all the doubts you can have. Emotional doubt robs you of your joy with Christ. It burdens your worship, makes you feel guilty, keeps you from running to God with your problems. And when you do talk to God, all you seem to get is silence in return. Well, Dr. Gary Habermas is my guest today. He's going to help us with this topic. Let's start off with talking to people who have doubt. Redefine where we were coming from last week and then tell me what are the common myths about doubt. Well, first of all, let me say this, preface. I am not aware of a subject regarding which there are more twists and turns than this one. And what Christians commonly say to each other are not just wrong, they are pain-causing. Here's some of the things you hear about doubt, and all of these, in my opinion, are false. Doubt only happens to intellectual people. It always happens and follows the same course. It's always followed, uh, answered by the same techniques. Doubt is always sin. Nothing good can come out of it. Perhaps... Doubt is even the unpardonable sin. Heroes of the faith never doubt. Only weak-minded people doubt. Strong Christians never doubt. And on and on and on. Or if you're questioning, you're probably going to hell. I remember a case uh, years ago where a young lady happened to say to her seminary friends, uh, I've been having questions about my faith. She was doing okay until her friend said to her, well, true Christians don't doubt. If you're doubting, you must be unsaved. And that just sent her into a, just a suggestion that she might be saved. Johnny, here's how, how key it gets. If Let, let me um, give a typical movie type please, example. Please do. Uh, the woman who says to her husband, Honey, do you love me? Yes, dear. No, come on. Look at me and say this. I love you. No, no, come on. Look at me. I want to get your attention. Say it meaningfully. Dear, I love you. Thank you. Could you do that every day? 
Well, not really. And this little discussion, what do we say about a person, whatever it is, male, female, what do we say? Do we say, she must not be in love because she asks for it so much? I'm sorry, hello. She wants assurance because she's so much in love. Now, the Christian who says, Lord, do you love me? Please, tell me today. And what do we say? Oh, they've lost it. They're not in love. Now, that's how counterintuitive some of this stuff is. And here's one of the most interesting, maybe the major twist and turn. The person who has emotional doubt, which we identified last show, is the most frequent and the most painful. The person who has emotional doubt, it could be exactly the opposite of what they say. The person who loves the Lord enough to keep asking, I'd say most of the time, is deeply in love with the Lord. But if people are hanging out there, especially people they respect, saying to them, well, hey, look, if you're asking these questions, you must not be saved. That's like saying your spouse is unfaithful to you. It causes this kind of dissonance. It's a, we, we don't apply the same kind of good sense that we apply to the, the wife or the husband who wants reassurance. I want it from the Lord. You're lost. That doesn't make any sense at all. The average doubter, the average emotional doubter, in my opinion, is probably a person who's deeply in love and wants the Lord's affection. Here's the good news. They already have it. It's there. And so the key is telling yourself something differently. I think people are drinking this in. They want to know more. Tell me some other stories of people that you've met across the country. I mean, you've got to change the names, but tell me what else has happened. Well, some of these, some of these if the person wasn't hurting so much, you'd think it was humorous. But I, I received a, a call from a, from a man one time in the, in the Northwest, and, and he said something like this to me. He said, hey, I want to know, I want to know for sure that I'm saved. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the John Ankerberg Show. For more information, please contact us at 1-800-805-3030. That's 1-800-805-3030. Or go online at www.ankerberg.org. Today's show is a production of the Ankerberg Theological Research Institute and is a recognized member of the National Religious Broadcasters.